The Coates and Children's Library at Princeton University Library presents The Bibliophiles. Hi, this is Dr. Dana. My guest is Kay Umansky, author of the fantastic Solomon Snow series. The first book, The Silver Spoon of Solomon Snow, opens with the infant Solomon Snow being left on the doorstep of a tumble-down cottage on a lonely moor just outside the town of Boring. The only clue to his past is a silver spoon with the initials VIP carved into it. Ten years later, Sully discovers his mysterious past and sets out to find his true parents. He is joined by Prudence Pridey, a nosy, irritable know-it-all who manages to rub everyone the wrong way, the infant prodigy, perhaps one of the finest and most entertaining brats in literary history, and Mr. Skippy, the most useless pet in the world, period. In the second book in the series, Solomon Snow and the Stolen Jewel, the gang once again reunites for adventure. Prudence's father is arrested for poaching, yes, again, and they must rescue him. Their path quickly gets tangled with those of Shorty, the villainous dwarf, the nefarious Dr. Calamari, Gross, the servant, and the Firestone of Taj, a ruby with a hefty curse. The Solomon Snow books are absolutely hilarious from start to finish. Set in Victorian England, they are written in a clever, old-fashioned, tongue-in-cheek way with witty dialogue, interesting twists, and plenty of exquisite temper tantrums. Kay Umansky joins us from London, England. Miss Umansky, welcome to The Bibliophiles. Well, thank you very much, Dana. (laughs) You've been writing children's books for over 15 years. Before that, you worked in a laundry. You picked carnations at a greenhouse. (laughs) You sung in a soul band and taught primary school. How did you decide to be a writer? Well, you know, it wasn't something I decided to do. It's just something that I've always, always done. I think from the minute that I picked up a pencil, I wanted to write stories. I I think probably because I was born in 1946. And when you're a child of the 50s, you don't get an awful lot of presents or toys. There was no electronic equipment around in my day. So I was a massive reader. And I think that's what makes you into a writer, really. If you love to read, then you want to have a go at it yourself. So I've always done it as a hobby and never really thought about getting properly published until I was about nearly 40 years old. Wow. And you decided on children's books exclusively? Yeah. I think I write for the inner child. I've never, ever wanted to write for adults. I just like kids' books. I love reading adults' books, but I love writing for children. So of the Solomon Snow books, you say, a while ago I went on a reread Charles Dickens binge. Inspired, I cried, I can do that. I couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what came out with Solomon Snow? I couldn't write like Dickens, <laughs> much as I would have loved to. I am a big Dickens fan, and I think, really, I wanted to, I wanted to write Solomon Snow set in sort of a Dickensian sort of era, because I always like um, to write about an alternative world. I, I, generally, I write fantasy, so a lot of my books are about magic and sort of, you know, creepy woods and things like that, and vampires and goblins and witches. But I thought I'd I'd like to try something a little bit different, but I didn't want to write it set in contemporary England. So by removing it and setting it back a couple of hundred years or a hundred years or so, um, that seemed to do the trick. There are three main characters in this book, Solomon Snow, Prudence Pridey, and little Rosabella, also called the infant prodigy. I would love to hear how you developed each of these characters. Can we start with Solly? Well, 
I think is a kind of every man. He's 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 like sort of like you would want your own son to be or your brother to be. He's he's really nice kid, I think, and he kind of represents just ordinary children everywhere. He's always very good natured and very helpful and and and, and quite sort of he's, he's just rather sweet, I think. Prudence, um, on the other hand, is um, well, she's a bit sparky, isn't she? she <laughs> I, I think probably because she's a bit frustrated. She she likes to live in in the stories that she writes, but in those days, um, girls weren't considered to be um, right for writing. It was mo- most literature was written by men. So, and, and also she's a poacher's daughter, so she's not really in a very good position to be getting her books published and heard and out there. So. I I think that's probably what makes her a bit cross. And having some, um, having lots of sort of annoying uh, sisters and a very annoying little brother as well doesn't help. <laughs> and also, of course, she's very poor. So all those things combine to make her the sort of rather bad-tempered thing that she is. Whereas little Rosabella, I have a feeling that um, in my in my brain, um, I still remember Violet Elizabeth from the um, William books, which were written by Richmond Crompton, and which I loved as a child, a um, dreadful, spoiled, awful child, but <laughs> hilariously funny. And I think the infant prodigy is a sort of development from directly from Violet Elizabeth. Oh, really? Yeah, I think so. Uh, but she sings. Violet Elizabeth doesn't doesn't sing, but she lisps and she tries to get her own way and she she manipulates adults and by being cute and sweet and pretty. Um, and she's just a rather selfish little thing, but, but, but she's very useful as well. She has all sorts of little things about her that sort of helps the plot on. So together, the three of them seem to gel quite well, I think. I'm curious about the title, The Infant Prodigy. Where did it come from? Um, well, um, in Dickens, there was um, a wonderful uh, circus child called the Phenomenon. <laughs> I think it was in, in Hard Times, I think, or, although I'd have to go back and, up and make absolutely sure about that. But I thought, the Phenomenon, what a fantastic name to call a child. So I wanted something that sounded a little bit like that. So the Prodigy was, was the nearest that I could get. <laughs> she has almost supernatural powers of persuasion, either through yes. tantrums or being really syrupy, sweet, cute. <laughs> <laughs> I know, sweet and cute and rather sickly, I think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think I'd like her too much if I met her in real life, <laughs> although she does make me laugh. <laughs> also, I don't know if um, this was intentional, but I notice in Dickens' books, and this is one actually gripe I had, reading Dickens in high school, is that the main characters, the boys, the heroes, the boys were always so polite and rather oh, wimpy. Oh, no, I know. Do you think they were always polite in those days? I'm not, I'm not at all sure about it. Well, you know, Oliver... What, what really... I mean, I love Dickens. I think his, his characters are absolutely amazing, and, and that, the whole sort of ethos of it is just great. You can really sort of smell the air and, 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 and sort of feel what it must have been like to have been around at those times. But the women are not good. I think um, <laughs> some of the older women are good because they're funny characters, but the young sort of heroines are always rather soppy. And I think that's, that's one criticism I would have with him. And you know, Oliver was just so polite and always crying. I, I was like, come on, oh, Oliver. <laughs> and he was so middle class, wasn't he? He was so well spoken. Um, I, I just feel that if he'd been sort of 
stuck in this orphanage for all that time, he'd probably be speaking quite rough like all the rest of them. But no, Oliver speaks really politely. <laughs> and so Solly, actually, when he's calculating that maybe his parents aren't his parents, one of the things that he comes up with is, well, I'm very polite. That must yeah. mean I'm in the upper class. You know, it's in, like <laughs> yeah. Oliver, you know, he, he still speaks like well. Oliver, exactly. right. I always imagine Solly as having a Devonshire accent because I come from Devon originally. I live, um, which is a sort of, it's in the West Country in England and we're very rural down there. And we all talk like that. We got a sort of <laughs> accent that goes like that. And I, I always imagine that the characters in, in Solly have got a West Country accent. Can you also tell us about Mr. Skippy? Oh, Mr. Skippy, what a dreadfully boring animal he is. I mean, you know, I don't really know where he came from, I have to say. And I mean, he just does nothing. And in both books, he just sort of sits and stares into the air. <laughs> and that's what he does. He's, he's totally useless. He's not like sort of Lassie or one of those wonderful animals that come <laughs> racing along and sort of helping and getting children rescued and, and sort of actually adding anything to the plot. Mr. Skippy just sits there like a sort of great big bag of fur and does absolutely nothing the entire two books. <laughs> we should add here for, for kids who haven't read the book yet that Mr. Skippy is a rabbit that Rosabella rescues uh, as, actually she doesn't even rescue he's left he's left behind off of a butcher well yes yeah, he's in a crate isn't he <laughs> I think a butcher is kind of loading a load of meat onto onto his wagon and um, the crate gets left behind whether or not he's coming back for him I don't know but Rosabella kind of falls in love with him and, and rescues him much to Prudence and Solly's disgust because um, they could do without having this rabbit dragged along on all their adventures but sadly they are stuck with him <laughs> <laughs> in the first book, The Silver Spoon of Solomon Snow, the gang gets caught up with a villainous woman who calls herself Nanny. Basically, she holds kids captive in her overly warm nursery, feeds them sugary heavy meals, forces them into frilly dresses, sailor suits, and terrorizes them with all the comforts of childhood. What inspired this character? Yeah, what a nasty piece of work she is, <laughs> right. the baby farmer. In fact, um, there were women that actually did that kind of thing um, um, back in the 1800s. I mean, there were, there were actually people that would take children off the streets and scrub them up and, and, and then sell them on to the highest bidder, children, people that didn't have children or that wanted maybe a serving maid or something like that. So children were kidnapped and, and sold on. And that is what Nanny is planning to do with them, with our heroes. But luckily, they do get rescued. I had no idea that there were people doing that, farming mm -hmm. children. There were. There really? Were. Shocking, isn't it? It is, it is surprising. And I didn't make the connection in the book that Nanny was doing that. Yeah. I, I thought she was just weird. <laughs> no, no. She, she was a baby farmer. And baby farmers, that is what they did. They would steal babies and small children and, and sell them on to the highest bidder. It actually did really happen. Um, I mean, Nanny um, is all lovely and sweet initially, but uh, when the children stand up to her and try to escape, then she changes and we really see her dark side. Actually, when they get rescued, that was one of the best bits I enjoyed in the book because I had to do a lot of research. They, they get rescued by escaping up a chimney. And um, that was interesting because I, I had to find out how chimney sweeps actually climbed chimneys. And there's not an awful lot available um, telling you about that. So I went on the Internet and finally found, um, found a piece that actually described how they did it. And it's pretty horrible up that chimney, I tell you. It didn't have a good time.
Uh, yeah, and they used to light fires underneath if they weren't moving they fast enough. They did. I mean, if, if children got stuck up, up these big chimneys, uh, the sweep would often light a fire down below to give them that extra fear factor to enable them to sort of scramble up. Because they, they would often get lost in these, like, long, sort of nasty black corridors, and they'd have to turn around bends, and it, it just sounds absolutely monstrous. Thank goodness we don't send children up chimneys anymore. The sequel to the first book is called Solomon Snow and the Stolen Jewel. Did you know when you were writing the first book that you would write another book? No, I hadn't got a clue. Um, I, I didn't know how well Solomon Snow would do. Um, for the second book, I mean, I, I thought, shall I carry on with the same quest um, for him finding his parents, or shall I do something completely different? And I thought, I think I'll do something completely different for that one. Because I had this idea of this sort of Dr. Calamari, who is, who is the baddie, and sort of in his dark tower, sort of planning to steal this wonderful jewel. And, and, and I, I, I really wanted to include him, and I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, then don't let's get confused with the plot of the first book. Let's keep it completely different. So hopefully it's a standalone, and you don't have to read one before reading the other. In the second book, the gang sets out to rescue Prudence's father, but they get caught up in a botched jewel heist that involves Dr. Calamari, his slow-witted servant Gross, a shifty dwarf named Shorty. So you have this daring rescue mission the kids are on alongside a cursed jewel heist. So where did the particular plot come from? It seems so unusual. You know, the plot got sort of cobbled. I am not a great one at sorting out a plot before I begin a story. Um, In some ways, that's quite exciting because um, I'm telling myself it as I go along and I'm never quite sure which direction it's going to take. I have a sort of vague idea of the overall sort of course that the plot's going to take, but the details and all the little sort of tiny things that happen along the way, I just don't know until I actually get there. So I write it as I go along, and I I just had an idea. It would be nice if it involved, if a plot involved a stolen Egyptian jewel, because in Victorian times, um, sort of Egyptian um, displays were terribly popular. Um, Adventurers would come back sort of usually sort of very moneyed, wealthy men would set off um, and discover amazing things on the other side of the world and bring it back for for ordinary people to go and see in various museums and things. And I thought, oh, that would be a really nice idea to to sort of have an Egyptian sort of uh, slant to the story with this mummy and things. And um, so that's where I started from, really, just from the idea of it would be really good to have a beautiful jewel found with a, a, a long dead mummy and and it to be stolen and the kids to get involved in the whole sort of business of the stealing of the jewel. (laughs) And Dr. Calamari, I love him. Yeah, Dr. Calamari, what a hideous person he is. (laughs) I I liked him because um, it was fun because when I got to his bits, I wrote those in the first person. So he's he's writing his journal. So um, we, the reader, um, are sort of finding out his thought processes um, as the book goes along, which makes a nice change, I think, from writing in the third person, which is what I do when I'm with um, the kids. I'm wondering if you would be willing to read a passage from the second book? Oh, I'd love to. I love this passage because it illustrates in very clever second-hand way the magnitude of the infant prodigy's temper tantrums. 
<laughs> right. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll read a little bit um, where um, where we're joining Gross, which is Dr. Calamari's um, rather stupid, very large servant, and Shorty, who is a rather nasty dwarf, and they are in pursuit of the infant prodigy because they believe that she has got the stolen jewel um, tucked inside a toy rabbit that she's got with her. Let me just add one thing here. She uh, found the bunny that Shorty had taken from her and in in taking it back from him, completely trashed his circus caravan. Absolutely. She shattered windows. She broke things. She poured green paint. She did. She did some really, really bad vandalism on his (laughs) caravan (laughs) because she was in a very, very bad mood. Right. So, okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. Two figures, one big and hulking, one small and sullen-looking, came limping tiredly along the winding country lane. Gross and Shorty were hot on the prodigy's trail. Well, not exactly hot. They were quite cold, actually, despite having walked all night. At first, the trailing had been easy. There had been a full moon and a sky full of stars. Plus, they had a lantern borrowed from the caravan, which miraculously had survived the prodigy's onslaught. Conveniently, she had stepped in the green paint she had thrown about in such copious amounts. Her small footsteps showed up clearly in the silvery light, leading off down the lane, heading south. Gross had set off eagerly, moving with huge strides, head lowered to the ground, with a reluctant shorty dragging along behind. After a while, the prodigy's painty footsteps had faded to nothing. But even so, there were clear signs of furious, indignant passage. When she was in one of her tantrums, her habit was to lash out with her parasol. She had left a miniature storm in her wake. The rutted lane was littered with scattered twigs and decapitated flower heads. Whenever the road divided, you just had to look for whacked hedges and trees with chunks taken out. She couldn't have blazed a clearer trail if she'd used a chainsaw. But as the night wore on, her temper had evidently worn off. Either that, or she had gotten tired. There were now no signs of attacks on the blameless hedges. The road ahead lay empty and barren of clues. That didn't stop Gross, though. He kept going south with relentless, shuffling determination, and Shorty had no option but to keep going, too. There had been no attempts at conversation. They both needed all their breath for walking. And now a new day had dawned, and still they were walking. Can we stop for a minute? begged Shorty, staggering to a halt. He was having a horrible time. His hot, scratchy clown clothes were picking up hundreds of burrs. His bare feet were killing him. He was covered in road dust, which stuck to the grease paint, which he hadn't even had time to remove. During the long night, annoying things had kept happening to him. Branches would swing back in his face. A cow had leaned over a fence and spat cud all over his trousers. All this after hiding in a coffin, stealing a jewel, escaping from the museum, coming home, getting in a fight, dressing up as a clown, doing an unpopular performance, coming back to find his caravan trashed, then being half-strangled by a gorilla with a mission. Ah, what life threw at you sometimes. Kay, that was great. I'm just going to ask you to read the rest of the book to us. (laughs) Good. (laughs) I have a question about your website. 
typically authors' websites just have a short bio on the author, and the rest is given over to their books. But your website is hilariously extensive with pictures of your family, your cats, (laughs) you at different stages of your life. There's even a section devoted to my bad habits. Do, do you mind if I read? I've written them all down there. That would make the website much too big. Do you mind if I read what you've written for my bad habits? No. <laughs> okay. Here we go. I can be lazy. I don't oh, do yeah. enough exercise. I try and get out of cooking. I get grumpy when books aren't going well. I listen in on private conversations and sometimes steal them for my books. I bite my nails. If I'm enjoying what I'm writing, sometimes I forget to brush my hair. I buy too many shoes. My husband empties the rubbish and clears up the cat's fur balls, and I just sit and watch Judge Judy. <laughs> if my husband true, gets... I'm a big fan of Judge Judy. <laughs> Everything is true, and I could add another 20, but I won't, because it makes me come across as too awful. <laughs> it says, uh, if my husband gets up in the morning and steps in a cold fur ball, I laugh. I do. <laughs> Wouldn't you? <laughs> and it finishes up with, I am unsympathetic when other people are ill, but demand attention and moan a lot when it's me. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> yes, it's all true. It's true. It's all true. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so, I tell you what, perhaps I ought to do, perhaps I ought to do another bit with all the nice things about me. That would be a lot shorter, though. <laughs> yes, I think, you, I think you should. I definitely think you should. Oh, dear. It made me laugh. Well, do you have any other books coming to the States? Well, I don't know. I'm I'm hoping so. Um, I've got one out in the States, which has been doing quite nicely, I think. It's called um, Clover Tweak and the Incredible Flying Cottage. Um, And I've got the follow-up is coming out in the UK um, next March. It's called Clover Tweak and the Perilous Path. So I'm hoping that just maybe it might come out in the States as well, which would be absolutely wonderful. I would love that. I'm actually halfway through the the first Clover Twig book, and I think oh, it's... Oh, are you? I am. I think it's brilliant. Oh, are you enjoying it? Oh, I'm so pleased. I enjoyed Clover Twig. I, 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 she's another sort of sensible girl. Um, very, very different to um, Prudence Pridey. Um, she's really got her feet on the ground. Um, and this time, it's the boy who's a little bit silly um, in, in the Clover Twig books. He's called Wilf, and I'm rather fond of him as well. Well, Kay Umansky, thank you so much for coming on The Bibliophiles. Oh, I've had so much fun. I really have. It's been absolutely lovely. Thank you so much for inviting me. And, and I do hope that uh, any of your readers, um, if they do get hold of, of any of my books, really enjoy them. <laughs>